0: There was a knock one morning. A man was standing at my door. He said, hello, I'm from Halliburton. Have you heard of us before? We'd like to lease your backyard to drill for natural gas. It's called hydraulic fracturing, and it is the very past for a clean energy future above the Marcella Stone. Plus, we'll give you lots of money and a new mobile phone. I said, you are a corporate crook. I don't believe the things you tell, and you can drive right off my property and then go straight to hell. No fracking way, no fracking way. Corporate salesmen, whatever they may say, no fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking
1: way. way. And that was an excerpt from the song No Fracking Way by David Rovix. You can find that entire song on the album Big Red Sessions. Welcome to Frack You Very Much, a Fracking Terrible podcast. If you want to send me a message, just go to frackyverymuch.com. You'll find a link there to send me an email. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You can also find Frack You Very Much on Twitter at FYVM Show. In this episode, we start down in Australia. This piece is written by Jane Barden and is published at abc.net.au. In the middle of the federal government's planned gas-led recovery, the future of the Beedaloo Basin is in doubt because traditional owners have decided they want to take over the power to negotiate with gas companies. The local land council, which had been negotiating on behalf of the traditional owners, has been asked to withdraw from talks with the gas companies. The Beetaloo Basin is an enormous shale gas resource 400 kilometers south of Darwin, which this month was named as one of five, quote, strategic gas basins that the federal government wants to help fund the development of. Native title holder Samuel Sandy has watched with growing concern as fracking companies gear up to start this massive new shale gas industry on his land. Quote, If fracking does come in, including the 500 wells that they're talking about, it's going to destroy the very life of this land, the land that my ancestors used to walk for 40,000 years, he told ABC's PM program. He is even more worried that both the northern territory and federal governments are staking a large part of their post-covid-19 economic recovery plans on the proposed gas field. The Newcastle Waters Murangi native title holder said that when traditional owners including his father gave their consent for gas exploration in the Beetaloo in 2015 and 2016 They weren't given enough information about fracking by the Northern Land Council, which facilitated the negotiations. Quote, There was an agreement, but there was bad communication. They could have explained more to the native title holders. He said his native title group and traditional owners from eight other areas covering most of the Beedaloo Basin have decided to take the power to negotiate about whether a major fracking industry starts away from the land council. They held a meeting of all of their groups at the Daily Waters in the heart of Beedaloo at the weekend. The Native title holders have established their own negotiating body known as a prescribed body corporate PBC, the Nurdalindji Native Title Aboriginal Corporation. Mr. Sandy said through the new body, they will try to stop gas being developed in the Beedaloo, and if they can't do that, they will try to gain stronger guarantees of environmental protection for their land from gas companies, including Orion Energy. With this, PBC will try to have an agreement with them, try to tell them not to do this, not to do that, not to touch sacred sites, he said. Native title holder Janie Dixon said she decided she wanted to be represented by the new body because she felt the land council had not given her family enough information about the scale of the gas developments proposed. Quote, They never gave us good advice about what it's for and what it's going to do, she said. We are standing strong not to have this fracking because we don't like fracking. Northern Land Council Chief Executive Marianne Skrymgauer rejected accusations the Land Council failed to get properly informed consent from Beetaloo Basin native title holders. Quote, I'm confident that everything the Northern Land Council has done has been above board and that we have consulted with everyone appropriately, and particularly to what is proposed in the Beetaloo Basin, she said. She would not be drawn on whether the Land Council would attempt to challenge the new body's application to be recognized as the new representative of the native title holders in the federal court. Quote, Any claims that go into the federal court from third parties, the Northern Land Council can't comment on that until such time that it happens. So we'll just have to wait and see what's going to happen, she said. Kirstie Howey, a specialist in native title, who has worked as a land council lawyer, says establishing the new negotiating body is the first step Betaloo native title holders will have to take in order to take negotiating control from the land council. They will also have to convince the federal courts that they are the key indigenous decision makers for their areas. Quote, The new PBC will have to establish that the appropriate people have been part of consultations. Those people need to have authority under Aboriginal tradition to make the decision effectively, she said. Native title laws don't give traditional owners the legal right to veto gas developments. But Ms. Howley, who is completing a PhD on native title negotiations with resources companies, said Northern Territory government approval processes require that Native title holders are properly consulted before development applications are granted. It is very important for the gas companies for their social license to operate that they have functioning, supported Native title agreements with traditional owners. It's a core part of the authorization of any project, she said. She said even if the native title holders fail to block gas production on their land, they will have the right to negotiate for fair compensation and environmental guarantees. Those benefits can include royalties, the establishment of a trust to manage social and community benefits, extensive sacred site protection, establishment of indigenous businesses, as well as environmental protections above and beyond those, that are part of the Northern Territory law, as it currently exists. Origin Energy, which holds the gas exploration permits over most of the area the nine native title holder groups have rights to, said the company, quote, "...is not aware and has not been advised of any change to the Northern Land Council being the default PBC." There are many ways traditional owners can engage with Origin and seek information about our exploration project. The company has also consistently said it will use the most advanced engineering techniques to make sure its fracking does not cause any environmental damage in the Beetaloo Basin. One of those environmental damaging uh, conditions induced by fracking is earthquakes. We've talked about those a number of times on previous episodes and in reading the compendium. Uh, Here is a story from the Seismological Society of America, published at PHYS.org. Unusually shallow earthquake ruptures in Chinese fracking field. An unusually shallow earthquake triggered by hydraulic fracturing in a Chinese shale gas field could change how experts view the risks of fracking for faults that lie very near the Earth's surface. In the journal Seismological Research Letters, Hong Fang Yang of the Chinese University of Hong Kong and colleagues suggest that the magnitude 4.9 earthquake that struck Rongxian County, Sichuan, China, on 25 February 2019, took place along a fault about one kilometer deep. The earthquake, along with two foreshocks with magnitudes larger than four, appear to be related to activity at a nearby hydraulic fracturing wells. Although earthquakes induced by human activity such as fracking are typically more shallow than natural earthquakes, it is rare for any earthquake of this size to take place at such a shallow depth. Quote, earthquakes with much smaller magnitudes, for example magnitude 2, have been reported at such shallow depths. They are understood by having small-scale fractures in such depths that can slip fast, said Yang. However, the dimensions of earthquakes are scale-dependent. Magnitude 4 is way bigger than magnitude 2 in terms of rupture length and width, and thus needs a sizable fault as the host. The results here certainly changed our view in that a shallow fault can indeed slip seismically, he added. Therefore, we should reconsider our strategies of evaluating seismic risk for shallow faults. Two people died and 12 were injured in the 25 February earthquake, and the economic loss due to the event has been estimated at 14 million RMB, or about $2 million. There have been few historic earthquakes in the region, and before 2019, there had been no earthquakes larger than, Than magnitude 3 on the fault where the main earthquake took place since 2018 there have been at least 48 horizontal fracking wells drilled from 13 well pads in the region with three well pads less than two kilometers from the molin fault where the main earthquake took place yang and his colleagues located the earthquakes and were able to calculate the length of the main rupture using local and regional seismic network data as well as INSAR satellite data. It is unusual to see clear satellite data for a small earthquake like this, Yang said. INSAR data are critical to determine the depth and accurate location of the main shock because the ground deformation was clearly captured by satellite images, he noted. Given the relatively small size of the main shock, it would not be able to cause deformation above the noise level of satellite data if it were deeper than about two kilometers. The two foreshocks took place on a previously unmapped fault in the area. The researchers found, underscoring how difficult it can be to prevent fracking-induced earthquakes in an area where fault mapping is incomplete. The researchers note that the Molin Fault is separated from the geological formation where fracking took place by a layer of shale about 800 meters thick. The separating layer sealed off the fault from fracking fluids, so it is unlikely that the pressures of fluid injected into rock pores around the fault caused the fault to slip. Instead, Yang and colleagues suggest that changes in elastic stress in rock may have triggered the main earthquake on the Molen Fault, which was presumed to be stable. Quote, The results here certainly pose a significant concern. We cannot ignore a shallow fault that was common, commonly thought to be a seismic, Yang said. Who said more public information on fracking injection volume, rate, and duration could help calculate safe distances for well placement in the future. And next up, a piece published at policynote.ca, bu- written by Ben Parfit A big fracking mess. As Site C dam construction bogs down in geotechnical problems, thousands of earthquakes triggered by fracking operations occur nearby. Earthquakes triggered by natural gas industry fracking operations near BC Hydro's troubled Site C dam construction project are far greater in number than previously thought raising troubling questions about whether they are adding to the already formidable geotechnical challenges at the site. Not only are more earthquakes occurring in proximity to the costliest public infrastructure project in British Columbia's history, but many of the fracking-induced tremors, including one that shook the ground so hard two years ago at Site C that workers were ordered to evacuate, are occurring in a fault-riddled zone to the south of the dam that geoscientists have warned can become quickly unstable during fracking operations. Now, thanks to the work of David Leversey, an experienced mapper, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives is able to show for the first time just how many earthquakes are occurring in proximity to the troubled dam project, which is mired in controversy due to recent revelations about a host of new, quote, geotechnical problems at the site, problems that could yet prove the project's undoing. In 2017 and 2018 alone, there were 6,551 earthquakes in the region, equal to or greater in magnitude than 08 That number vastly surpasses the 71 earthquakes identified in the same region in Canada's National Earthquake Database, which is maintained by Natural Resources Canada, NRCan, and is typically considered the go-to voice on earthquakes in the country. In addition to those thousands of earthquakes, there were more than 4,100 other very small magnitude seismic events in the same area that registered under 0.8 magnitude. Almost all of the earthquakes occurred in the geologically sensitive zone where Site C is located and where fracking companies have been extremely active. The much higher figures are derived from the recent work of a team of scientists led by Ryan Visser, a physical scientist and seismic analyst with Natural Resources Canada, who analyze data from a greater number of seismographs that are in than are in the NRCAN network. The expanded network includes included seismographs owned by some of the very companies that did the fracking jobs that are triggering the earthquakes, as well as monitors installed by universities and regulatory agencies. The scientists use the expanded network to also identify earthquakes at much smaller magnitudes than previously reported. Leversee used the same data to plot the earthquakes onto a map. The map shows that much of the area to the south of the Site C dam is riddled with faults in the shale rock where fossil fuel companies have pressure pumped hundreds of millions of litres of water into the earth That pumping has touched off thousands of earthquakes over a very short time period, including a 4.5-magnitude earthquake in November 2018 that led to the evacuation of workers at the Site C project. The zone is part of the natural gas-rich Montney Formation, which has the dubious distinction of having, quote, "...hosted more earthquakes triggered by fracking operations," Than any other region in Canada, according to a recent study led by geophysicist Marcos Roth. The earthquakes blanket much of the Kiskatinaw Seismic Monitoring and Mitigation Area, or KSMMA. The area is named after Kiskatinaw River, a tributary of the nearby Peace River, where the Site C Dam project is located. The KSMMA is riddled with underlying faults. Those faults, according to two independent geoscientists who reported in 2019 to British Columbia's Oil and Gas Commission, can easily become, quote, critically stressed with just small increases in the pressure at which oil and gas companies pump massive amounts of water, sand, and chemicals underground during fracking operations to, quote, liberate trapped natural gas and valuable liquids, including light oil and condensate. you got to love the euphemisms in the industry, where they are liberating those uh, fossil fuels from the ground. It was one of those pumping operations at a natural gas well site 20 kilometers south of the Site C project that touched off the November 2018 earthquake. In early 2020, the CCPA published two lengthy investigations based on documents obtained through a Freedom of Information request filed with BC Hydro. The documents showed that dam safety officials and engineers at the Crown Power Utility had serious concerns about the damage that could be caused to its two existing dams on the Peace River. The first of the two pieces flagged concerns within BC Hydro about the Peace Canyon Dam, which is about 80 kilometers upstream of the Site C project. FOI documents revealed that should a strong enough earthquake be triggered near the Peace Canyon Dam, it could set in motion events that brought the concrete and steel structure down. The same piece also noted concerns within BC Hydro about the potential vulnerability of the WAC Bennett Dam The massive earth-filled dam, which is the height of a 60-story building and impounds the world's seventh-largest reservoir by water volume, lies upstream of Peace Canyon. The second of the two reports focused on a disposal well operation near the Peace Canyon Dam. Disposal wells are where waste liquids generated during the fracking process are pumped deep into the earth for disposal. The disposal well was only a short distance from the dam. FOI documents obtained from BC Hydro showed that a 5.5 magnitude earthquake near enough to the Peace Canyon Dam could have, quote, significant consequences for the concrete and steel structure. The same piece also detailed events at the natural gas fracking operation that triggered the 2018 earthquake and concerns at Site C. The latest revelations about huge numbers of earthquakes near Site C come as details emerge about a disturbing number of allegedly new geotechnical problems at the Troubled mega project. Almost from the start, Site C has faced setbacks, virtually all of which involve the notoriously unstable terrain in which the third dam on the Peace River is being constructed. In the winter of 2017, a 400-meter-long tension crack opened on the steep northern bank of the river, leading to a lengthy and costly delay as engineers scrambled to come up with plans to stabilize the bank, then re-excavate it and truck away thousands of tons of additional earth. A major landslide occurred just downriver from the dam site a year later, tearing up the road to Old Fort, enforcing the evacuation of nearly 200 residents. A landslide still being investigated with no end in sight by BC's Ministry of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources. Frequent problems occurred drilling and cementing the two lengthy diversion tunnels that are required to divert the river so that the dam itself can be built. Problems that also plagued the drilling of a kilometer-long drainage tunnel needed to divert water around dam infrastructure. Making matters worse, the drilling and cementing of a second drainage tunnel has barely started, even though the work was to commence in August 2017 and end in November 2018. As the problems pile up, so do the financial challenges for BC Hydro, which must eventually be passed along to taxpayers. Site C's original estimated cost was $6.6 billion, but many experts now believe the final bill for Site C will be $12 billion, or more, a projection that aligns with what the independent BC Utilities Commission said three years ago. According to recent reports that BC Hydro filed after months of delay with the BC Utilities Commission, the first covering the last three months of 2019, the second covering the first three months of 2020. The new geotechnical problems are legion and involve making changes or improvements to key components of the dam, including the massive roller-compacted concrete buttress behind the dam's powerhouse, the powerhouse itself, spillways, drainage infrastructure, and much more. Quote, Hydro doesn't even try to guess at a cost, except to predict it will be, quote, much higher than initially expected, veteran Vancouver Sun political affairs columnist Vaughn Palmer wrote of the most recent revelations. All of which makes the troubling number of earthquakes induced by fracking operations not far from Site C of such concern. Scientific study after scientific study has shown that the oil and gas industry fracking and disposal well operations trigger earthquakes. Like Northeast British Columbia, the state of Oklahoma was not known for having many earthquakes until the fracking industry arrived. But in 2011, one of the largest earthquakes to be associated with fossil fuel industry activities anywhere was triggered at a disposal well site in the state. The quake shook the ground in 17 U.S. states, buckled a highway in three places, damaged homes, and injured two people. Scientists who studied the event later concluded that the cumulative effect of 18 years of continuous pumping deep into the earth at the well site had set the stage for the strong quake. To date, the earthquakes in B.C. triggered by fracking operations have yet to reach that magnitude, but there is nothing to prevent such an event from happening. And the big question is what that might mean for geotechnically problematic projects such as Site C. The information on earthquakes in proximity to the dam is derived from data in two recent scientific studies. The two studies were both prompted by concerns that fracking is playing an increasingly important role in triggering earthquakes that such induced earthquakes are on the rise, and that information from many seismographs is not being collected in one place to provide a more comprehensive picture of what exactly is going on. What both studies do is combine information from the National Earthquake Database maintained by NRCan and other seismographic networks. The first of the two studies to draw on information from a vastly expanded seismographic network looked at earthquakes in northeast BC and western Alberta between 2014 and 2016. The study published by the Geological Survey of Canada in 2017 concluded that in those three years the NRCan database reported a total of 1,513 seismic events, while the actual number was three times higher at 4,916. During that time frame, there were five notably strong earthquakes in the study area. A magnitude 4.5 event on August 4, 2014, west of Fort St. John. A 4.36 magnitude event on January 23, 2015, near Fox Creek. A 4.59 event also near Fox Creek on June 13, 2015 a 4.55 magnitude event west of Fort St. John on August 17, 2015, and finally a 4.39 magnitude event located near Fox Creek on January 12, 2016. Using the same data gathered in that report, Leversee narrowed the study area down to a smaller area of land that included the Peace River region and the Wack-Bennett-Peace Canyon and Site C dams, and then pinpointed all of the earthquake epicenters. Levercy's analysis showed that in the smaller area, there were 2,983 earthquakes, a much larger number than the 347 seismic events recorded in the NRCan database. In other words, nearly nine times more earthquakes, including earthquakes nearby Site C, occurred than were captured in the NRCan record. In addition to seismic events near Site C, there were also earthquakes under or beside the massive Williston Reservoir, which is impounded by the WAC Bennett Dam. FOI documents obtained by the CCPA show that BC Hydro officials believe an unusual and unexplained water movement at the reservoir in 2012 may have been attributed to fracking operations. The second and more recent of the two scientific studies that Leversey drew on to generate his maps looked at a much smaller area of land than the first. That report, as noted earlier, looked at earthquakes in the years 2017 and 2018. In total, that report detected 10,692 earthquakes in the study area, a dramatically higher number than those identified in the first report, even though the study area was smaller. The authors of the more recent study noted that while there had been an overall decline in drilling and fracking operations in western Canada during that time, drilling and fracking remained intense in the Dawson Creek and Fort St. John areas because of the high percentage of valuable gas liquids, including condensate, found in the region's underlying shale rock. As a result of that ongoing drilling and fracking, many earthquakes occurred in the highly sensitive and geologically unstable Cascadia zone near the C Dam. A significant question for which there may be no readily available answer is just what the longer-term implications of those thousands of small earthquakes occurring over relatively short periods of time in a confined, highly sensitive area may mean. Could increasing numbers of smaller earthquakes be setting a stage for bigger earthquakes later on? And how could those earthquakes one day, how big could those earthquakes one day be? In February 2019, an independent panel of three scientists issued a report on fracking to the BC government. The report noted several troubling unknowns, including just how strong an earthquake could one day be triggered by fracking. That is a disturbing finding considering that the same report noted that there is scientific evidence that the cumulative impact of multiple fracking jobs is an increased likelihood of bigger earthquakes later on, a finding of particular relevance to Site C, where geotechnical troubles abound already and could be made much worse should a significantly strong earthquake occur nearby while market downturns in the global COVID-19 pandemic have wreaked havoc upon many sectors of the, the economy, including the fossil fuel sector. The other troubling news for BC Hydro at all three of its Peace River dams is that if and when the LNG Canada liquefied natural gas plant and connecting coastal gas link pipeline are completed, much of the gas entering that pipeline will originate in the very region where large numbers of induced earthquakes are already occurring. Stephen Rigby, the former head of Dam Safety for BC Hydro, likened what lies ahead for the Peace River region to a, quote, carpet bombing campaign. It was not hyperbole. According to a recent report published by the CCPA and written by Earth scientist David Hughes, who has worked for 32 years at the Geological Survey of Canada, Natural gas production in BC, quote, is projected to grow by 87% over the 2019 to 2040 period. That translates to huge increases in fracking in a seismically fragile region where BC's biggest publicly funded infrastructure project is now mired in geotechnical problems that are at the very least could prove prohibitively expensive to fix if they can be fixed at all. Call it one big fracking mess. Next up is a piece published at thetelegraph.com. This is written by Don Thompson of Associated Press. California Governor Gavin Newsom moved Wednesday to end issuing new hydraulic fracturing permits by 2024. A delay criticized by many environmental groups, but characterized as legally and politically realistic by another. Quote, He can suspend fracking now, but he is punting to the legislature, consumer watchdog advocate Lisa Tucker said. Cassie Siegel, director of the Center for Biological Diversity's Climate Law Institute, was equally critical, saying that the governor, quote, can't claim climate leadership, while handing out permits to oil companies to drill and frack. Greenpeace USA's Caroline Henderson said Newsom's track record on fossil fuels has only gotten worse, while Food and Water Action California director Alexander Nagy said his announcement amounts to, quote, lofty words and predictions, but no meaningful action. The Democratic governor signed an executive order to stop sales of new gasoline-powered passenger cars and trucks by 2035, while also announcing that he will ask the legislature next year to end new fracking permits by 2024. The environmental groups say he already has the legal authority to end fracking, which they say threatens water supplies and public health, while allowing for the continued use of fossil fuels that lead to global warming. The technique allows energy companies to extract oil and gas from shale rock deep underground, by injecting high-pressure mixtures of water, sand, or gravel and chemicals into rock. Siegel's nonprofit conservation organization on Monday notified Newsom that it intends to sue his administration to stop what it says is the illegal permitting of 1,500 oil and gas wells just this year without the proper environmental reviews. The group cited a ProPublica and Palm Springs Desert Sun investigation that found oil companies have reaped millions of dollars from selling the oil leaked from illegal spills with little punishment from state regulators they say are far too cozy with the petroleum industry. California Independent Petroleum Association Chief Executive Officer Rock Zierman, meanwhile, said the move will put thousands of people out of work, increase energy costs, and boost the use of foreign oil. The industry, he said, could help Newsom's climate goals by removing carbon from the atmosphere, resulting in negative emissions. California Republican Party Chairwoman Jessica Milan Patterson also slammed the governor for endangering hundreds of thousands of high-paying oil and gas industry jobs. Newsom defended his administration's regulation of the industry while insisting he can't end fracking permits unilaterally. Quote, we simply don't have that authority. That's why we need the legislature to approve it, he said. Newsom said less than 2% of the state's petroleum production comes from fracking, but he acknowledged that, quote, it also is symbolic and touted his phase-out deadline as a bold and big step. He said other regulations are under review that could include the sort of oil drilling buffer zones that environmental groups said Newsom should immediately impose around homes and schools. Newsom's executive order requires state agencies to come up with a plan by July to transition away from fossil fuels, a timetable that consumer watchdogs Tucker called, quote, a half loaf at best. And Newsom contended that his administration has, quote, been very aggressive in terms of our enforcement when it comes to oil spills, including more aggressive oversight and new leadership at the California Geologic and Energy Management Division. But he ordered the regulators to strictly enforce cleanup rules for abandoned wells. Newsom also argued that encouraging zero-emission vehicles to replace the internal combustion engine will create many new green jobs, promising, quote, to make sure that those are that are impacted by this transition are included in the new economic opportunities. Sierra Club California director Catherine Phillips said her organization is among those that believe the governor already has the authority to end fracking, but she acknowledged that Newsom's attorneys disagree. If Newsom's lawyers are right, Obtaining the authority from lawmakers in 2021 and phasing out fracking by 2024 is probably about as fast as he can go. On the one hand, it's not fast enough. On the other hand, what he's committed to is more than what any previous governor has committed to, Phillips said. This governor is now saying he's going to work with the legislature to get the power to ban fracking. That's a good thing. And from California, we head north to Oregon to look at one of the reasons why banning fracking is important. This story is written by Monica Samayoa, and is published at opb.org. The Oregon Department of Environmental Quality has fined two companies for illegally dumping 2.5 million pounds of radioactive waste in an Oregon landfill. Chemical Waste Management, CWM, and Oilfield Waste Logistics, OWL, have been fined a total of $368,656 in penalties for illegal dumping 2.5 million pounds of radioactive waste at CWM Arlington Landfill over a period of three years. OWL's civil penalty of $308,656 represents the estimated economic benefit the company gained by avoiding the additional costs of legally disposing of the radioactive waste at the facility. The $60,000 civil penalty assessed against CWM, a subsidiary of Waste Management Incorporated, is for the illegal disposal of radioactive waste and for failing to comply with the Hazardous Waste Disposal Permit that requires radiation screening. DEQ's investigation found both companies had between 64 and 80 shipments of radioactive waste between 2016 and 2019. It issued the fines on Friday. The Arlington facility is the only hazardous waste landfill in Oregon, and according to the Oregon Department of Energy, Oregon law prohibits the disposal of radioactive materials in the state. In February, ODOE issued a violation to CWM after receiving a tip from a North Dakota man last September who was under the impression that fracking waste from his state was being illegally dumped in an Oregon landfill. ODOE found the CWM illegally dumped nearly 1,284 tons of radioactive waste in the landfill between 2016 and 2019, totaling over 2.5 million pounds. Some of that waste exceeded Oregon's threshold for acceptable levels of radioactivity, which is measured by picocuries, the amount of radioactivity in a liter of air. Oregon's standards are 5 picocuries per gram for radium-226 and 20 picocuries per gram for radium-228. The waste that was received at the facility had concentrations up to 1,700 picocuries per gram. CWM spokesperson Jackie Lang said the company is committed to full compliance and has been working closely with both agencies. Quote, we immediately stopped taking the material when the state alerted us to a potential problem. We initiated our own investigation and then strengthened our controls so it wouldn't happen again, Lang said. It's also important to understand that all information indicated very low risk associated with the material. The Oregon Department of Energy stated in its initial assessment that there is no current threat to landfill workers, the public, or the environment. Lang said an independent radiation and risk analysis expert has validated ODOE's early assessment that the material indicated very low risk. Meanwhile, Jason Lacroix, oilfield waste logistics president and founder, said the company will be requesting a hearing to appeal the fines. In an emailed statement, Lacroix said the correspondence between OWL and waste management clearly indicates in documents that waste management determined the oil, energy, and production waste that OWL was hauling could be disposed of under Oregon law. Quote, My understanding was that WM was fully aware of the entire waste management process and procedures, given that WM was an oil, energy, and production waste generation hauler and disposer, LaCroix said. LaCroix said OWL initially sent four containers of waste by rail and then 64 loads by truck to WM from May 2016 to September 2019. OWL never had a load rejected at the Arlington Waste Facility. Critics said the state did not do enough to ensure this would not happen again and should have issued higher penalties. Columbia Riverkeeper Legal and Program Director Lauren Goldberg said that when nearby residents found out about the illegal disposal of radioactive waste, they were angry, disappointed, and fearful about having the waste in areas where they live. Quote, DEQ should have gone further in sending that message. While the fine is an important milestone, it is not enough to act as a strong deterrent. We need an organ to ensure that fracking waste doesn't find a permanent home in our state, Goldberg said. Goldberg said organ regulators need to do more to protect the environment from various sources of pollution, including fracking waste. Quote, the fact that it took Oregon regulators so long to recognize a serious problem is incredibly troubling, she said. Both for the people that live near this facility and as well for the tribal nations who have expressed serious concern about the radioactive fracking waste that was dumped in the Arlington area. And from Oregon, we go down to New Mexico for this next story. This is published at truthout.org and is written by Dar Jamil. Penny O'Coin, her husband, Carl D. George, Their son, Gideon, and their daughter, Skylar, have had their lives devastated by the fracking industry. There was no oil and gas infrastructure where they lived when they moved to Carlsbad, New Mexico. But six years ago, during a massive expansion of drilling across the Permian Basin that spans West Texas and southeastern New Mexico, one of the most prolific oil and gas basins in the United States, the drilling began. It was so loud, they had to provide hearing protection for Skyler. Then, when the flaring commenced, dead birds began literally falling out of the sky right next to their home, and one of their chickens died. Shortly after that, Penny began feeling the health impacts. Blisters appeared on her face as more drilling pads were installed, some of them literally across the street from their home. Their bedroom walls shook as the drilling pads were constructed nearby, installing both a physical and psychological invasion on the family home. Skylar started having nosebleeds, respiratory issues beset them all, and Penny had ongoing headaches. Carl discovered a nodule on his tongue. Then, when a pipeline near their home burst this January, they, along with their home and their animals, were showered, with toxic chemicals. When they walked outside to investigate the bang they heard, which was followed by gushing fluids, they believed it was raining. But what they thought was rain was in fact, quote, produced water. Another of those fun euphemisms of the fracking industry. The byproduct of fracking, according to the American Geosciences Institute, this toxic byproduct is full of corrosive salts, oil residues, fracking chemicals, bacteria, and dissolved organic compounds. These proprietary chemical blends, created by industry and protected under trade secret law, are highly carcinogenic. Since then, the family's days are filled with doctor's appointments, and Carl, a veteran, regularly visits the VA in Albuquerque hoping the nodule on his tongue doesn't turn into cancer. Any dream of their life returning to what it was before the oil and gas invasion is long gone. And now it is a matter of survival. They are just one family who are paying the price for a virtually unregulated drilling and fracking industry that has created one of the largest environmental disasters of modern times. A report by Physicians for Social Responsibility released in 2019 outlines in detail the dire health impacts caused by fracking. And if you listen to this podcast, as you're doing now, if you're hearing my voice, that report is the compendium, which is the report that I am reading. The Compendium of Scientific Medical and Media Findings Demonstrating Risks and Harms of Fracking unconventional gas and oil extraction. The sixth edition of the compendium is from June 2019 and is compiled by the Concerned Health Professionals of New York and Physicians for Social Responsibility. The many public health effects that that report cites include these examples. In Pennsylvania, hospitalizations for pneumonia among the elderly are elevated in areas of fracking activity and one study found significantly elevated rates of bladder and thyroid cancers. In Colorado, children and young adults with leukemia were 4.3 times more likely to live in an area dense with oil and gas wells. Drilling and fracking operations in multiple states are variously correlated with increased rates of asthma, increased hospitalizations for pneumonia and kidney, bladder, and skin problems high blood pressure and signs of cardiovascular disease, elevated motor vehicle fatalities, symptoms of depression, ambulance runs, and emergency room visits. The Environmental Defense Fund recently released a Permian-Basin-wide study on the emissions of methane and other volatile organic compounds. The study found methane releases across the Permian at a rate three times that which was reported nationally by the Environmental Protection Agency. The Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, recently released a Permian-Basin-wide study on the emissions of methane and other volatile organic compounds. The study found methane releases across the Permian at a rate three times that which was reported nationally by the Environmental Protection Agency. Furthermore, the EDF found a leak rate 15 times higher than the goal set by the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, a group of 10 oil and gas CEOs representing one quarter of the industry's entire global production. The group committed to investing in projects that will accelerate commercial deployment of low carbon energy technologies. The amount of wasted gas alone could meet the energy needs of every home in Dallas and Houston combined and the EDF estimates these methane emissions cost New Mexican taxpayers as much as $43 million in revenue annually. It is against that backdrop that a Harvard nationwide study recently revealed a link between air pollution and higher rates of COVID-19 deaths. Quote, The results of this paper suggest that long-term exposure to air pollution increases vulnerability to experiencing the most severe COVID-19 outcomes, the authors wrote. Direct assaults from air and environmental pollution, noise impacts, and chemical exposure for anyone living within 200 feet of oil and gas infrastructure are known to bring cancer, respiratory diseases, asthma, heart disease, and injury to small children, pregnant women, and fetuses. Now, in addition to these health threats, Penny o- O'Coin and her family are faced with the reality that they are more than twice as likely to contract COVID-19 compared to people not living among oil and gas drilling and fracking operations. Adding insult to injury, Williams Production and Exploration Energy, Inc., WPX, based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the company responsible for the burst pipeline, offered to buy them a new chicken coop and water bowl told them to keep the chickens off the ground for five days. That advice was contradicted by people from the Department of Health, the Eddy County Extension Office, and their vet, who all deemed their yard too dangerous for the animals. O'Coin moved the family's chickens and goat to the vet after the pipeline burst. Those officials and the vet herself all told O'Coin to have the chickens put down and not to eat the eggs. Quote, they also told us not to grow food on the land because it is contaminated, OCoin told truth out. While WPX paid for the boarding at the vet, quote, "They only offered us an insulting amount of money for compensation for everything, Ocoyne said. But that doesn't compensate us for the property damage, nor does it take into account our ongoing sickness or having to move and start all over. Now because the land is contaminated, we can't grow food or eat from the animals," O'Coin said. "But we are still here 7 months later and we are still in it. They didn't evacuate us or remediate the property. WPX does not have to release relevant health and toxicity information to the family about the contaminated water that rained down upon them because the makeup of this so-called produced water is considered proprietary. O'Coin and her family have received no assistance from the state of New Mexico and no actions have been brought against WPX by New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and her relevant governmental regulatory groups. The Oil Conservation Division performed no independent investigation of the incident and closed the case against WPX without a warning, fine, civil or criminal penalty or revocation of their permit to drill since Governor Lujon Grisham took office in early 2019, there have been 87 incidents, some of them major, by WPX alone. WPX has a history of egregious failures, which wouldn't have been possible without complicity of several New Mexico authorities, including the governor. In July 2016, 36 of WPX's oil and produced water tanks caught fire in San Juan County, setting off several explosions and causing the closure of a nearby highway. New Mexico's OCD had approved the development of the site, despite warnings about the company. Quote, WPX Energy scored near the bottom of the industry in a recent scorecard report published by investors benchmarking 35 companies on their disclosed efforts to mitigate key impacts advisory firm Green Century Funds wrote in 2015, and has faced controversy in the past over allegations that it irreparably contaminated local drinking water in Pennsylvania. In November 2019, a pipeline failure at a WPX well caused a large amount of produced water to be released into a nearby pasture. Despite the fact that an initial estimate of thousands of gallons of potentially carcinogenic produced wastewater were released onto an adjacent farm, neither the governor, New Mexico Environmental Department, Energy Minerals Natural Resource Department, nor OCD, required WPX to even notify the adjacent property owner of the potentially hazardous release. OCD later downgraded the total amount of produced water that was lost to 1,260 gallons. But the case remains open. Of the aforementioned 87 self-reported spills in New Mexico that have occurred since Governor Lujon Grisham took office, most of these have been fracked wastewater and crude oil with a total volume of at least 169,470 gallons, with WPX stating the majority of the incidents resulted from quote equipment failure. Evidence gathered in preparation of a potential lawsuit by the O'Coin family provided to Truthout shows that WPX has repeatedly failed to take actions to mitigate harm to both people and the environment and that the aforementioned New Mexico state entities, which are tasked with protecting citizens and the environment and overseeing the oil and gas industry in the state, have, quote, repeatedly failed to hold WPX and other oil and gas companies accountable, for committing that harm, according to research conducted for the family. The findings of the evidence also show numerous and egregious environmental violations WPX has carried out both in and outside of New Mexico. WPX has been involved in numerous lawsuits that have alleged egregious environmental violations, particularly regarding water contamination. In one instance on February 27, 2017, The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection fined WPX Energy Appalachia $1.2 million for contaminating drinking water. In just one source alone, Hydraulic Fracturing Tort Litigation Summary, published on July 15, there were at least three other lawsuits against WPX. One example is eerily similar to the issues WPX is involved with in New Mexico. On page 52 of the document, it reads, On July 2, 2015, the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection ordered WPX Energy Appalachia LLC to restore or replace the water supply of Virginia and Glen Kalp after determining that WPX's fracking activities were responsible for contamination of the water. WPX is not alone in their malfeasance. Since Governor Lujan Grisham took office two years ago, at least 901 incidents have been reported by the 10 largest companies operating in New Mexico. Other major violations include XTO Energy, which has had at the time of this writing 280 incidents in the same time period. Devon Energy, which has had 165. And Oxy USA, with 153. The findings also reveal that Governor Lujon Grisham and all the relevant state agencies responsible took, quote, little to no action to supervise, monitor, control, or penalize the companies, even for major incidents, which were most commonly spills of produced water, natural gas, or crude oil. The state of New Mexico does not even have legal standards for some of the top carcinogens found in the toxic wastewater produced by fracking. The state of New Mexico holds all natural resources within its borders in the public trust for the benefit of the people of New Mexico. The way Penny O'Coin sees it, the state of New Mexico has, according to their complaint, quote, failed in its fiduciary duty to recognize and prevent substantial impairment to the environment control of pollution, and control despoilment of the air, water, and other natural resources in violation of its constitutional constitutional, and statutory duties, thereby injuring these plaintiffs. The very agencies that are charged with the protection of New Mexico's air, land, and water, and are, quote, "...obligated to monitor, regulate, control, and enforce against oil and gas pollution." have failed in that responsibility, causing injury to O'Coin and her family, as well as all New Mexicans. Due to WPX's contamination of O'Coin's family and property with toxic carcinogenic and other ultra-hazardous materials, they have suffered the usual things people suffer from when they live in the impact zone of the oil and gas industry. Loss of the use and enjoyment of their property and the living space, loss of health loss of quality of life, emotional distress, and other damages. They have no idea what the long-term impacts of their exposure will be, but the risks associated with long-term exposure to volatile organic compounds like benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylenes, including growth reduction, cancer, and birth impacts like low birth weight, are well known. What makes O'Coin's potential lawsuit special is that it is challenging the entire fracking method of oil and gas extraction in New Mexico, as well as all of the state entities complicit with the oil and gas companies engaging in fracking. In the company's own words, WPX is, quote, focused on profitably exploiting, developing, and growing our oil positions in the Williston Basin in North Dakota. In the Permian and San Juan basins. It includes ownership, operation, construction, drilling, hydraulic fracturing, production, and maintenance of certain natural gas wells. O'Coin's and her family's claims arise precisely out of these very activities. The NMED, EMNRD, and OCD are all obligated to monitor, supervise, regulate, control, and enforce against oil and gas pollution. Yet they all have grossly failed their responsibility to do so. None of them ever issued compliance actions, required remediation plans, assessed penalties, suspended permits, or launched civil or criminal actions against WPX or any other bad actors in the oil and gas industry in New Mexico. This means that the government entities and their negligence of their official policy responsibilities have directly caused the harms to O'Coin and her family, as well as depriving them of their rights, which are protected by New Mexico's laws and constitution. Additionally, although not authorized by written law, such practices of extreme leniency, reads the complaint, include failure to investigate, failure to execute effective measures of enforcement or penalize violations, meaning that there are no proper proceedings for redress by defendant governmental entities, are so permanent and well-settled as to constitute a, quote, custom or usage with the force of law that encourage a Wild West or anything-goes environment that WPX and other oil and gas entities enjoy, which caused the injuries to the plaintiffs. The harms aren't just to human health. The toll on the state's water resources is significant. New Mexico is already facing extreme water scarcity, exacerbated alongside the climate crisis. Drilling one well required more than 11 million gallons of water per day in 2016, which is enough to fill 17 Olympic-sized swimming pools, according to one study. And for every barrel of oil produced, Four barrels of toxic produced water come with it. Produced water represents a dangerous and costly waste issue. According to NMED in 2018, New Mexico wells generated 42 billion gallons of this toxic wastewater, which is enough to cover 8,000 football fields with a foot of water every day. High levels of carcinogenic and radioactive fracking waste have already contaminated New Mexico's lands and waterways. According to the OCD, there were 1,523 reported spills in New Mexico in 2018, which is roughly one spill every six hours. Already in 2020, 1.6 million gallons of produced waste liquid have been released, according to industry self-reporting. These spills and releases are not considered a violation of any law, and operators face no punitive consequences. What is the state's answer to this ever-increasing waste problem? OCD released a proposed rule amendment in July with new mandates established in the State-Produced Water Act, which was signed into law in 2019. The law was hailed by New Mexico House Speaker Brian Egolf as one of the greatest environmental achievements in the state's history. But critics have raised concerns that the Produced Water Act and subsequent rulemaking could open the door for carcinogenic and radioactive fracking waste fluids to be, quote, repurposed in other sectors, such as road construction and management and even irrigation. Whether that is the intention of the bill's sponsors is unclear. Speaker Egoff submitted written comments to the OCD, according to research for the O'Coin family, stating, quote, I urge you to take care in the crafting of these regulations to ensure that none of the rules and regulations adopted, pursuant to House Bill 456, inadvertently allow or purport to permit any use, application, or discharge of produced water outside of oil and gas operations. The people of New Mexico will be best served by the adoption of stringent regulations of produced water that put public health and safety first and clearly state that any use of produced water outside of oil and gas operations is prohibited. However, a public records request revealed the OCD is working with industry on quote, pilot projects for off-field application before the state's consortium on produced water has completed a public safety review. Experts at the two-day hearing also pointed out that restricting produced water's reuse to the oil field is a legal fiction. What constitutes the oil field? Penny, Carl, Gideon, and Schuyler's home is technically outside of the well pad, but that didn't protect them from the impacts of exposure. The O'Coin-George family, like tens of thousands of others, live inside a checkerboard of oil and gas operations. When asked what WPX is doing to compensate or make whole the O'Coin-George family for their ongoing health issues, and the fact that the family no longer feels safe living where they do because of the proximity to the oil and gas operations, WPX spokesperson Kelly Swan told Truthout, It's difficult to ascertain the status of their health situation without undertaking extensive discovery process, which would include an examination of historical medical records. However, a member of the O'Coin family publicly testified in October 2019 about blisters, headaches, asthma, and nosebleeds. Those conditions obviously predate the rupture that occurred on our water line near their property in January 2020. Swan stated that since the accident, WPX has repaired the line and conducted safety and pressure tests, buried part of the line that was above ground, and shut the oil well that fed the line. He also said the soil testing and remediation was conducted and the results were reported to OCD. Quote, data from this work confirms that any misting from the tear in the line that may have impacted the family's property has been remediated and cleaned up to NMOCD standards, Swan said. On August 4, the NMOCD approved the completion of our remediation work. When asked what this company is doing to remedy what appears to be a history of accidents, spills and contaminating water sources, Swan said, quote, in 2019, WPX had 366 spills while managing more than 188 million barrels of produced water and oil on our drilling and production sites in Texas, New Mexico, and North Dakota. That's enough liquid to fill about 12,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Of that amount, We kept 99.988% of the water and oil where it was supposed to be, in pipes, tanks, equipment, trucks, etc. In addition to state reporting requirements, we make this information publicly available in an ESG report on our website. He added that his company spends millions of dollars on prevention, maintenance, and training and research into the causes of spills, and that in 2019, WPX reduced the volume of its spills by 29% compared to 2018. As for what WPX is doing to compensate the O'Coin-George family, Swan said, WPX had someone on site to shut in the well and stop the release within 24 minutes of learning about the incident. We have remained engaged with the family ever since and will continue to address their claims. Meanwhile, Penny, Carl, and Skyler's nosebleeds, headaches, and rashes continue. Gideon, their son, will soon have his nose cauterized again in an attempt to stem the nosebleeds, and Carl's skin rashes have spread across his back and shoulders. O'Coin wants WPX to make things right, but also simply wants acknowledgement of the suffering that has been caused to her family. Quote, We want them to realize we are people and that they've ruined our lives, she said. They need to get us out of there and move us to a safe place. Carl told Truthout that WPX needs to replace all that we've lost, including the loss of his family's home and strained relations within his family. This has ruined our lives in so many different ways, O'Coin said. Our health, family relations, financial problems, literally all aspects of our lives. It has become a living nightmare. It is like the company does not realize how they have impacted and changed every aspect of our lives. New Mexico is faced with this fundamental issue. Does it fill its coffers with blood money, sacrificing the health of its people in order to reap funding from the oil and gas industry? Or, Does it hold accountable an entire industry that is poisoning its people and the land of enchantment? New Mexico's current administration has chosen the former. And that will wrap up this episode of Frack You Very Much. You can find all the back episodes at frackyouverymuch.com. You can follow on Twitter at Show. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. From the album Singing Clear, Clean Earth, Air, Water, Round Here, this is Bev Grant and Daniel A. Weiss with Get the Frack Out of Here. Thanks for listening.
2: We got a cocktail to inject